Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 47. I'm just a teenage dirtbag, baby where we will be looking at chapter 99 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of teenage cringe. Oh dear, that is a great title. Yeah, and that song is actually probably better than anything Quoth ever wrote. You really are a little bit snarky today. And what if I am? (sighs) Well, anyway, on with the shoe. The shoe? (laughs) We're a little punchy. Some of our best episodes have been punchy. Hopefully this is one of those as well. Anyway, if you're new here, welcome. We're two-thirds of the way through the wise man's fear right now. And if that's where you want to start, cool. Anyway, an explanation of the pod. Each week we will be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. Then we will talk about a wise person to model our lives after in our Aristotelian Phrenemos of the Week section, which may just cease to exist during the Florian episodes. Yeah, that's fair. And then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second, there will be spoilers for all of Patrick Rothfuss's writing that we are aware of. And a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. And don't kick people in the slushy. This week especially, I just have to tell you that I do not have patience for people shirting all over Pat. Because I am excited about the thing that he announced. How about we just discuss that in lieu of a Phronemos? We should do that. We should definitely do that. I agree with you. And as we will probably remind you after we go through the whole chapter, there really isn't a Phronemos when all we've got to work with is Quoth and Florian. But let's go ahead and get into the chapter first. All right. This is chapter 99, Magic of a Different Kind. And it's really just Quoth talking about his reputation and reminding us that most of the stories that are told about him are lies that he started himself. So this, of course, makes you wonder why would this whole account be any different? Is any of this true? And honestly, probably not. So I actually have a couple of notes that I wrote down at the beginning of this section because I actually think that some of this stuff Why would he say it? Why would Patrick Rothfuss write it? Why would the editors leave it in, considering that this is 1,100 pages and it doesn't actually have that much bloat, provided once we get the answers to everything, it doesn't turn into a lost situation. But there are some things talked about in here that Quoth says he planted as rumors that I kind of wonder if they might actually be real. Or real to the story, like things that actually happened, or if they're made of whole cloth. So we've got 
I spoke eight languages. Well, he does actually speak a few languages, but maybe not fluently. Eight really isn't that impressive. I mean, talk to anyone from India. Right. Where oftentimes conversations are, which language are we going to talk in? I mean, if you're just talking about languages that are native to India, much less the fact that most people that I know from India speak English pretty damn well. Like maybe writing it's not as easy and maybe some of the idioms aren't great, but pretty damn well. Yeah, typically they speak Hindi and English and two or three others. And what that might be will depend on what region you're from, what region your family's from, what religion you are a part of, and yeah. <laughs> but I know a lot of people who are also on top of those learning things like French mm -hmm. or Spanish or Italian or German or Mandarin or... <laughs> Or Japanese, just mm -hmm. it, eight is just not that impressive to me. Or Swedish, you know, like mm -mm. yeah. So there's that. That one I can actually believe that both maybe knows bits and pieces of eight languages. But there's also when I was three days old, my mother hung me in a basket from a rowan tree by the light of a full moon. There's that moon thing again. Keeps creeping up. That night, a fairy laid a powerful charm on me to always keep me safe. I mean, safe is relative. It turned my eyes from blue to leafy green, which may be a glamour. The thing that keeps coming back to me is he says repeatedly here, I'm one of the Edema Rue. We know a lot about stories. We know all the stories. We know the best stories. Everybody says so. <laughs> and... I knew how stories worked, you see. Right. I mean, let's be real here. My background is in game design and just design in general. And on top of that, humans as a species tend to be very good at finding patterns. And when you've got patterns such as narrative structures, it's really easy to pick out narrative structures and kind of guess where a story is going. Which is why it's so satisfying when somebody maybe subverts a trope, subverts where you think the story is going, and why that feels so wholly unique. Like, slight spoilers for Guardians of the Galaxy 3. They didn't just put the love interests back together in the forms of Star-Lord and Gamora. That would have been expected. We have to have love interests. That's how stories are written, right? That's how things that have a male lead and a female lead exist, especially if they already were lovers at one point. You have a whole arc of they get together, they break up, they get back together. And this one didn't do it. And I like that. I would also say that there are some stories that work at surprising you by acting as sort of a magic trick where they present all of the information out in front of you and then they play a trick with emphasis. So they make you think that the story is about one thing when the real story is actually happening on page, but maybe not with the same level of emphasis as the audience recognizes. Glass Onion. Glass Onion would be an example of this. I was also thinking of the Prestige specifically. Ah, yes. 
where you have a story that seems like it's about one thing and you think it's leading to one thing and you discover it's totally different by the end. It's a magic trick where it's all about misdirection. And then when the reveal comes, by the end of it, you're surprised, but you also don't feel cheated because it's not just characters behaving strangely for plot reasons or anything like that or things happening that aren't true to their characters. Everything that you need to know has been given to you. It's just that you've been misled by an unreliable narrator. And I kind of think that's the sort of story that we're looking at here. Um, and I mean, the, the entire King Killer Chronicle is something of a magic trick narrative. We've got ourselves an unreliable narrator who has told us from the very beginning that he is a liar. And on first blush, your instinct is even with that knowledge, there's a tendency to say, oh, well, obviously he's someone who is known for lying, but he's not doing that now. <laughs> People tell you who they are. Right. So if we look at it through the lens of everything Foth is saying right now is bullshit. Well, there may be some kernels of truth in here, but they are not the ones necessarily that I think that we always think they are. Because remember, Kvothe is telling this story with an agenda. Whether that agenda is to cause some specific outcome or just to make himself look good or to make himself feel good about himself or just to say, I want to tell a good story because he is the sort of person who won't let the truth stand in the way of a good one. He's told us repeatedly that he cares more about a good story than an accurate recounting of things. So I'm inclined to say, why would this be different? And I agree with you, unless it is all true. Which again, I think that having everyone on their toes feels really good, especially when you get that big reveal at the end. Yeah. And, you know, trying to figure out what might come next, that's kind of fun, but it's not nearly as fun as just letting the magic trick happen. Exactly. So and this is why I don't engage too much in theory craft. Which is probably a frustration to those listeners that would like us to have wild speculations. Oh, yeah. I mean, any number of things could be true, but we won't really know until the final book comes out. So, again, like, this is very cringy to me because he just keeps lauding himself as this fantastic, amazing a Dimaru storyteller who knows all the stories, who knows everything about narrative structure, who has yada, 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 yada. And it just reminds me of one of my first days in college being in a class with a teacher who had worked in narrative-based games, who is very smart, well-respected, and experienced. And this kid who was straight out of high school stands up and he's like, I'm a writer. And I'm like, okay. And me and the other 30 something year old that I was friends with in that class, look at each other. And we basically want to head desk because we're just like, oh, okay. You're a writer. How old are you? <laughs> you do know you have more to learn, right? Like it's easier to learn if you just, you know, on your first day of class and listen or try to have a discussion where you don't assert that you're the smartest person in the room. Even if you actually are, which I can tell you he wasn't because 
my teachers were very, very, very smart. And there were 80 students who were all quite intelligent and 79 of them didn't speak up and said, I'm smarter than the teacher. <laughs> uh, but if, if you feel like you are that smart, you may still have things to learn and you may be able to recognize that you still have things to learn. And Quoth strikes me as someone who is not quite 17, which has been reiterated in this, saying, I'm the best at, I mean, name something. Yeah. Yeah. The people who are really the best at something usually don't have to tell you they're the best at something. They usually just show it. Yeah. Or they just do it and they don't need to show it either. That's what I mean, though. Like, it is something that is demonstrated just by them doing the thing. Right. Well, let's go on and continue what is supposed to be a very lovey, sexy, alluring, maybe, story. Where Quoth has still put himself at the center of all of it. And still views himself as this magnificent lover of Florian. And Florian is kind of a prop in his story, which is Uki. So there's a couple things that I saw here where he's like, okay, cool. I'm in the Fey realm. I can probably learn some magic stuff and all sorts of secrets. And really he discovers pretty quickly that Felurian just isn't interested in that stuff. Like she doesn't know anything about the Amir. She's like, there are no human Amir. And that's really the only information that he gets out of her. Okay, but when we get to that little bit, I kind of want to discuss whether or not that's true. In this particular case, what I was specifically talking about is that he wakes up and he kind of extricates himself from the sleeping form and starts thinking to himself, self, I could probably learn some things here. And <laughs> It just sounds so full of himself. Like, he doesn't sound like he's genuinely curious about what she actually wants to teach him. He's interested in how he can use Valorian as like a library. And she's not interested in that. No, she's interested in sex. And you know what? Yay. Good honor. If that is what she wants, great. I think that it's wonderful and fantastic. And she does the things <laughs> that I think are very effective. And also a little bit cute, which is the way that Florian handles any sort of thing that she really just wants to avoid is to go up and kiss him and keep his mouth busy. And then there's a bit that's actually kind of chilling when she does that. We aren't there yet. Stop skipping the whole chapter. There isn't very much of it. Stop skipping the entire thing. Okay. <laughs> but I agree. It does get chilling at that point, but I want to get to that. Okay. So Quoth isn't clear when he goes up to Florian and just says, I would like you to teach me. Okay, so what does Florian want to teach? She wants to teach him to be good at sex. I don't think he was. <laughs> but the way that Quoth talks about it and the way that he talks about her words were this. I just can't take some of it seriously. Like the woman's flower. I just, <laughs> yeah, this is what we mean by cringe. Yeah. Like all of this is stuff you're like, okay, 
I get it. This is stuff that you'd see on like Urban Dictionary. It's not even as good as some of the stuff that you would like. Some of the things that I need to go look up on Urban Dictionary are way more clever. I mean, yeah, it's pretty obvious what she's talking about. Oh, yeah, of course it is. And then you're just sitting here like, first, why is Quoth treating all of this like this is some great big mystery to be solved, right? Because he's nearly 17. That's why. Right. Nobody else can possibly know about this. <laughs> I have absolutely no experience, but oh my goodness, I'm learning this thing that no one else has ever learned in the entire history of ever. Hey, 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 guess what? I, Quoth, am the world's greatest lover because I know something about oral sex. I hear women like it. <laughs> wow, Quoth, thanks. You've solved one of the great mysteries of the world. <laughs> I mean, okay. To be fair, though, there are a lot of people who could use that lesson. <laughs> yeah, but... Having figured it out doesn't automatically make you S-tier or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Figuring out how to do it well might. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but the way that Foth phrases it, which is also, I mean, it's the way that Patrick Rothfuss phrases it, but then filters it through a 17-year-old. It's just That's what I mean by totally cringe. It's just, it's that whole, like, this is the first time I'm experiencing something. So it's the first time that anyone's ever experienced this and I get all the knowledge first. You kind of get the sense that Quoth talks about sex the way he talks about methaglin. If you've never tried it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It really reminds me of that bit in the fourth season of Arrested Development where George Michael, Michael Sarah's character, is talking about his sexual awakening and it is just the cringiest thing ever. Yeah, I mean, uh, anyway, we're going to go to the next little bit because that was just, that was too much. Like, mm. <laughs> so the next thing he's talking about is, okay, so I know I was young and I was full of energy, but you can't just have sex all the time. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, thanks for the great insight, Quoth. But this is where he starts, again, trying to steer the ship that is Valorian's mind towards the things that would be useful to him. And I think... She's just not interested in talking about this. Not that she's ignorant. I kind of get the sense that it's not that she doesn't understand magic. It's that she does magic without having to go through all of the complexities, the alar and all that. Sure. Like, it just comes naturally to her. So what Valorian says is that her magic came naturally as breathing. I might as well have asked a farmer how seeds sprouted. And I'm like, just because you're too stupid to understand the answer doesn't mean that the answer doesn't actually have weight, impact, science, or knowledge. I don't know what I'm looking for specifically related to Valorian's magic, but like a farmer can most likely explain how seeds sprout 
at a higher level than your understanding. It's like biology with people who insist that there is male and there is female because that is what they learned in eighth grade because they learned XY and XX chromosomes and they stopped learning. <laughs> I kind of think in this case, that whole, it's like trying to ask a farmer, how a seed sprouts? It's kind of condescending to farmers. Yes. I think it'd be more akin to trying to ask a fish how swimming works or to ask someone, how does walking work? Right. Have you ever tried to tell someone how to walk? I mean, have you ever tried to tell someone how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Right. It's possible. It is absolutely possible. Yeah. There are some shortcuts that you can take for people who know what a knife is, who know how to spread things with a knife. If you have never done it or have never had it explained to you, it's ridiculous to try to explain it to somebody. Right. It. Some of these things are learned by doing them and by experiencing them rather than having someone explain it to you. To bring it back to something else, when you're first learning guitar, you have to consciously think about every single finger placement for every single chord. As you get better and as you practice certain things over and over again, some of those things become automatic. Some of your mistakes also become automatic. If you're doing the same pattern over and over again and you keep forking up the one, you're more than likely going to continue doing that if you don't do a full reset. But some things, once they become automatic, it becomes harder to explain and break it down, especially if you have absolutely no interest in why it works. And I don't think that Florian has any interest in knowing how her magic works. She just knows that it works. And that's all that matters to her. And she didn't sign up to become a teacher. No. I mean, if she did, it has nothing to do with this kind of magic. It has everything to do with she's perfectly happy to teach him how to do sex. That's what she wants to teach. <sighs> Let people do what they're good at. There is another little bit here that I did underline because I think that this is very good insight, actually. Especially when you're talking about making friends with someone or building a more romantic relationship or a more intimate relationship with someone. So it says, but most of our time was spent telling stories. We had so little in common that stories were all that we could share. We weren't compatible emotionally or intellectually. So the only thing that we found common ground on was this one topic of telling each other stories. And then Kvothe is like, and she didn't even know half of the things, like despite the fact that she's thousands of years old, she didn't know the things that I know. I kind of took that less as a point of pride on his part, but more just the fact that he recognized that because her experiences were so vastly different, that she didn't approach any of his stories with sort of the jaded, I've already heard this response. I can respect that to a point, but the way that he says, surprisingly, Florian had never heard of Taberlin the Great or Orin Velsiter. It's because she doesn't live in the world where they are relevant. So Orin Velsiter, I get, I'm actually a little more surprised that Taberlin, who supposedly seems like the sort of person who would be more fairy adjacent. 
I can get behind that one, but she did know who Ilian was. And that one makes a lot of sense because he's a bard. He more than likely wrote some of the stories about the Fae that have filtered into the Four Corners. There's crossover there. He may have spent time in the Fae. So I actually want to get to something that may be getting into more of that mythical lore side of things. So when we first meet the Chandrian, right, there's that bit where Haliak says, who do you think keeps you safe from the singers and the Amir? And it kind of makes me wonder. So like the general theory is that the Amir and the Cathay are linked to one another and that we have the Amir who basically started out hunting the Chandrian after Landray's fall as this act of vengeance because of Selatos. Then we also have the Singers, which is another separate faction that seems to be from this dawn of time prehistoric war that also pursues the Chandrian. And it makes me wonder if that mythopoetic connection there with the Edema Rue is sort of where their heritage comes from and hints at a secret purpose that they hold. And might include Ilian. Yeah, exactly. So just a thing to think about. I thought it was an interesting callback that that's the one historical figure that they both know. We also have Quoth saying again, I, on the other hand, was of the Edema Rue, and we know all the stories in the world. Which implies that maybe the Fae isn't part of the world, because he doesn't know the Fae stories. He doesn't know Felorian stories. And when he tries to get clarification on her stories, to get more information, to get more digging deep into that lore, she's like, oh, come on, you should know this. Go away. I think part of it is that it brings to mind the fact that stories exist within a cultural context. And the things that we think of as inherent parts of those structures are themselves cultural elements. So like, for instance, the idea that stories have to feature conflict is actually a cultural construct. It is not in any way intrinsic. There are cultures in the world that have stories that don't have conflict at all. Again, with the, there has to be a romantic love, sex interest. Right. There doesn't. Right. Stories can take all kinds of forms. Like, even as we have Joseph Campbell positing the hero's journey as sort of this universal thing, it's far from the only way to tell a story. We've got thousands, millions of stories that exist that don't even feature any of the plot points that you expect out of a hero journey, don't even follow the same narrative rhythms. And while that particular narrative style is popular and common. Very prevalent. But it is far from universal. It's entirely possible that Quoth comes from a culture where a hero's journey narrative is the dominant form. And that's what he tells. So he says, we know these stories back and front. This is something that we were trained really well in. And I kind of get the sense that the Fae don't think in a linear fashion. So it makes sense that Felurian stories aren't going to necessarily be linear stories that follow this 
heroic narrative that he's been trained from birth basically to accept. It might be a little bit more like a rival. Yeah. He's thinking in different terms than she is. And the story can still be there. It's just not the thing he thinks it is. And so he's evaluating it based on how well it conforms to this particular narrative structure that he's conceived of as universal at the age of 17, mind you. Not quite 17. Excuse me. (laughs) If I can't be pedantic, what can I be? Plenty of other things. (laughs) Now, he says she did know stories of the Amir, but they were thousands of years old. And to touch back on what you were talking about earlier, hopefully I've left that in. There were never any human Amir. Like, she kind of chides Foth a little bit for asking about the Amir in terms of, like, the church, like the Talon church, and trying to ascertain what people are Amir and whatnot. And she says there were no human Amir, which implies that they were all of the Fae. So I wonder if the ones that continued that tradition are all children of the Fae, or if they were unnaturally to our mind long-lived fae that just kind of had to pull a a trick kind of like Hob Gadling did where he just reinvents himself as his own son every once in a while from the Sandman. Kind of reminds me of how like the Freemasons trace their lineage to the Knights Templar and even maybe think of themselves as the Knights Templar but if you were to ask a Knight Templar back in the day they might regard others as just imitators. And so the next question is, are the human Amir humans that just model themselves after the actual Amir? Are they imitators? Are they taking up the mantle because there were those traditions and stories about the Amir? Did they have any power? Did the original Amir have power? The other thing is, is Felurian even authoritative on this subject? Shruggies? Right. We don't know. This is what Felurian claims to believe to Quoth. Who might be making all this up. Right. The next thing, since he didn't get the answers he was looking for about the Amir, he brings up the Chandrian. Yeah, as I alluded to earlier, that was a bad idea. That was a bad idea. It's like her entire demeanor changed from being this little flirtatious fawn, doe-eyed, lovey-dovey, to being like a storm cloud in her eyes and on the verge of that magic crackling back in a way that would be more dangerous, more hurtful, more deadly. Yeah, because she starts by doing the thing where she's like, okay, let's not talk, let's kiss. And then when she's done with that, she actually starts threatening some pretty serious violence. She basically says she'll drive him naked and crying and screaming from the Fae until he's either gone or dead. Because, of course, he won't let it go. That's kind of chilling, right? Right. This person who is doing all of these intimate things with you and, in theory, trying to make you feel safe and warm and loved, like a flip of a switch just goes 
if you talk about this again, I will murder you. Yeah. The Fae are fundamentally alien. Like, even though she looks humanoid, right? And she's naked, which alludes to a portrayal of vulnerability. Right. Fundamentally, her mind works differently. And the things that she values are not the same. And the way she thinks about the world is not the same. The way she thinks of herself is not the same. So we can't really just use human psychology to define her. And to that point, as she continues telling him stories, Kvothe realizes where those differences lie. He doesn't push Valorian too much more because all it does is result in anger coming back towards him. So he just sits and quietly listens, confused, because he has no context for her stories. Yes, he learns things, but not enough things to really make a roadmap of what the Fae as a people really are. The kinds of things he learns are very detailed and specific. Don't do this in front of this group of Fae. Don't do that in front of that group of Fae. It's basically fantasy Australia. Everything will kill you. With a whole bunch of unfamiliar proper nouns. <laughs> like You have these don't give proper noun to proper noun. <laughs> and you're just like, I have no idea what any of that means. But okay. I had no desire to ever entangle myself with even the kindest corner of the fan court. I hate to break it to you, Kvothe, but uh, that ship has sailed. I mean, Florian is actually pretty high up there in the hierarchy of the Fae. And his existence there, it means he's entangled. Right, and it's all at her will. Yep. And extricating himself from the Fae also takes him doing. And is also at her will. Yep. And so, yes, he does point out that the Fae are not like us. We are not the same. We forget it at our own peril. And I think that's also something we need to think about when we think about Bast. Which brings us actually to an excellent segue. Normally this is where we talk about it for Nemos of the Week. But as we've discussed at length, there isn't really a good one here. So we're going to talk a bit about Pat's book announcement. Which happened in between our last episode and now. He's going to be releasing a new novella. Is it what you all wanted? I don't really care. The answer's probably no. But if we take it away from the lens of, but I've been waiting for book three forever, and go, an author I like has written something that seems interesting, I can be super excited about this. First of all, I love Bast. And this novella is basically taking The Lightning Tree which is a short story about Bast that was written for an anthology called Rogues rather quickly and is also a little bit long for that anthology even. But Pat can't help himself because, I mean, have you looked at how long the Wise Man's Fear is? Okay. So what he took is the lightning tree and he pretty much doubled it. And for those of you who are fans of his other novella, which is about Ari, which is the slow regard of silent things. That one has illustrations by Nate Taylor, and this new one will have illustrations by Nate Taylor. And I'm 
super excited because the illustrations also tell us things. Those of us who are interested in theories and details and all of that stuff, there's more to learn from those illustrations. And Nate was also the one who drew the pairs deck that is for The Name of the Wind. So canonically, he has worked with Pat to design these characters in visual form. And Nate's a really good guy. We've talked to him a few times at Comic-Cons. So if you have read The Lightning Tree, yay! It was not published in every country that Pat Rothfuss's other books have been published in. So there are a lot of people that have never heard the story, read the story, sought it out. They didn't know it existed. I know we've mentioned it a few times, but I'm excited because that was a good story in the first place. And it's all about Bast, who again, one of my favorite characters. But to expand it, oh, it's just, it'll be interesting to see because there may be changes. This may exemplify the whole idea of Quoth or whomever not being a reliable narrator for this story to talk about the truth as in events that happened as they happened. Because now we have two versions of the same story and who's to say which one is the accurate one? Yeah. I mean, the thing that I keep coming back to is the old aphorism that comparison is the thief of joy. And when it comes to our expectations for what should or shouldn't happen in the story next or should come out next, any of that stuff. Honestly, this is why I avoid making predictions or getting excited about when Doors of Stone will come out because it prevents you from really appreciating all of the things that exist in their own right. It prevents you from actually appreciating the work that Pat has released and any future projects are forever viewed through this lens of, uh, but it's not Doors of Stone. Yeah, it isn't Doors of Stone. That's okay. It doesn't have to be. And it's only a problem if you make it a problem. Kind of feel like this is something that we just got to accept. This is the story that he felt compelled to write for whatever reason. And his reasons are his own. And that's okay. We'll probably do a series on it when it releases and you can talk to us about it and share in that experience of reading it for the first time because let's be real even if you've read the original version because this is expanded and no doubt altered a little bit it'll be a new experience for all of us and we all get to read it with fresh eyes so one thing to mention i did put it out there on our discord if anyone would like us to do a extra little bonus episode, which might actually take the place of one of our normal episodes because I know how we work, on the lightning tree. And we got a resounding yes from our very small audience on Discord. So I think I wanted to do that. Yeah, I think we should. Um, I think there's no reason not to. And like I say, at that point, it won't be a reread. It'll be like a live book club almost where... Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. Hmm. So the lightning tree is the thing that exists now. Right. The narrow road between desires is the name of the novella. I'm saying we should do a bonus episode on the lightning tree before the novella comes out. Ah, yes, we should do that. And then we'll also do a near real time at release series on the narrow road between desires. 
I'm also kind of excited because it comes out on your birthday. Happy birthday to me. Yes. And so I know what I'm going to get you for your birthday. Probably going to buy a signed copy of it from World Builders. I might buy a reading copy of it. And I'm probably also going to get it on audiobook because especially if Pat reads it, I actually really like him reading the slow regard of silent things. I personally can't read that book. Like I can't read the actual text of that book and not go nuts. Pat's the first one to admit that that book is something that he was shocked was published because he understands it sounds like a crazy person wrote it. <laughs> but so, yeah, I'm actually quite excited. And one thing as a person that is very much a creative maker type, sometimes when you get so stuck in your head, you can't fathom a way out especially with the thing that you have all the pressure in the world falling on your shoulders to finish. So Pat has the pressure of millions of readers. All of us want the end of the story. Some people have turned bitter and are really forking mean to him. And it makes it harder when you have all that pressure. And so just to be able to start something else, it's kind of that priming the pump thing. Get you back in the swing of things. There's a whole bunch of idioms that are all about this. And I think for me, I'm just glad that he's finding joy in writing it all. Because I hate to say it, but all the little like fandom forkers that have decided that they're going to be so angry at him for not giving them what they want or what they think they are owed have just probably sucked all the joy out of writing for him. And he has other things in his life that we know bring him joy. His boys bring him more joy than writing something that he has, yeah, promised he would eventually write to his publishers. Because that's the only people that he owes anything to. And contracts can be broken. So if he's finding joy in writing anything, in rewriting The Lightning Tree and choosing to publish it, if he finds projects that are bringing him more joy and bringing him more fulfillment and they also happen to be things that I'm interested in, I'm really happy. I have to say, looking at it from the lens of Patrick Rothfuss is a human being and yeah, we want the final book, but more than that, we need Patrick Rothfuss to be the kind of person who can actually write the final book. And that doesn't happen in a vacuum. The layer between fan and author is thinner than ever. He sees all of the Twitter threads. He sees the forum posts. He sees the YouTube videos. All of the things that people do complaining. Like He hears all of the criticisms more than he hears any of the people excited. I can guarantee you that. Right. It's human psychology, actually. And he explained this very, very well in his announcement on Twitch that's also on YouTube. And I've linked to it a few different places that you can find. But he's like, you can have a day where you saw the best painting ever and it made you think really hard about your life and everything that's great and wonderful in it. And then you could go and have the best meal at the best lunch spot in your town and then you could have 
a lovely interaction with a person who says, I love your work. And I think that it made a big difference in my life. And you can then go and read a beautiful book of poetry. And then someone can just scream at you, telling you that you're the most awful piece of shirt human being because you haven't written what they want you to write. And the only part of that day that you're going to focus on is the asshole that told you you're a piece of shirt. Again, this is just a reminder to our community. Let's not let our comparisons rob us of the joy of experiencing this work in its own right for what it is. And let's also not allow that comparison to rob joy from the person creating it. We can like it or dislike it, but that comparison is really where you lose me. So with that, let's go ahead and talk about uh, recommended thing of the week. It's my turn this week. So I'm going to talk about an album that I absolutely love. It is no secret that one of my favorite bands is Mastodon. They're an Atlanta progressive metal band. It's really hard to describe them because each album's a little bit different. So their most recent one is one that's actually been really helping me through a rough spot in my life. It's called Hushed and Grim. It's a double album, and it's got all sorts of interesting song structures and things like that. And primarily, it is an album about dealing with grief and loss. This is an album that the band recorded in response to the death of their manager, Nick Johns, who passed away in 2019. And, you know, it's something that they wrote, you know, over a period of two years, you know, a lot of it during the height of COVID. And, you know, you can really hear the band, you know, all four of them really grappling with not just how they feel, but how they feel about how they feel. It's heavy. It's got some real bangers on it. I love a good headbanging song. There are quite a few of them on this, but there's also some that are more meditative and instrumental and atmospheric. There are three main vocalists in Mastodon. You have their bassist, Troy Sanders, who's known traditionally for harsh vocals, kind of caveman grunting. Then you have Brent Hines, who is one of their lead guitarists, who is known primarily for kind of almost Ozzy Osbourne style falsettos. And then you've got their drummer, Bron Daler, who does a lot of really beautiful, clean vocals. And throughout all of this, you see all three vocalists in conversation with one another, doing a lot of call and response. And there are elements of each of them pushing themselves into what they can do. And then all of this with Bill Kelleher really driving things forward with percussive rhythm guitarists and trading off solos with Heinz. And then throughout, there's also some guest solos as well. Marcus King, the blues musician, shows up on the track Beast. Kim Tail from Soundgarden also records a solo on Had It All. It's this deep, multi-layered album. And especially if you're listening to it on a good sound system, it's echoing and cavernous. And it really pulls you into this mood. And... It's very rare in today's world of singles and streaming tracks and playlists 
that people just sit down and listen to an album start to finish. But I would say that this is one of those that really benefits from that. And it's a unique experience. I strongly recommend doing so. Picking up on vinyl or CD or just download the whole thing if you want to listen to it digitally, but listen to it in album order to really get that full experience. Listen to it on the best headphones you've got and the best bit rate you've got for files. It's worth it. It's a great album that I genuinely love. And yeah, that's going to be my recommendation. One thing I would like to do is go back to a different recommendation that you've made on the pod. And that was listening to your music on vinyl. I think there's a point that one of my friends and I discussed afterwards that we didn't discuss on the pod that I think is really key. Listening on vinyl is intentional. And to me, it's a bit of a ritual. I now have my own vinyl set up in this room. It has been a lovely experience. One of the best parts of it for me in comparison to listening to a streaming audio track or album or even listening to something on CD. With vinyl, you have to get up every, I don't know how many minutes. Usually about 19 minutes. You have to get off of your butt and go change your record. I have a more hipster turntable than you do, and mine does not have an automatic return. I need to get up. I can't just sit here and abnegate. It has to be kind of a ritualistic, intentional listen. And I think I'd lost that with streaming services and YouTube and whatnot. Even with, like, when I was a kid, a six CD disc changer. The idea of listening to an album start to finish, especially with the way that my brain kind of works where if I don't like a song, I get really irritated. It means that I have to be very intentional about what albums I buy, what things I want. And it also means that I have to be more open to maybe things that I didn't necessarily think I'd enjoy or songs that maybe I didn't enjoy as much as other songs on the album. Because while yes, you can pick and choose what song you're going to listen to, if you put the needle in the right grooves or in the right spot on the record, it's more of a pain in the butt. You can't do that to everything or you're just going to be obsessively looking at your record player. And so to that end, I think your recommendation of listening to Hushed and Grim as a full album, it's one of those things where choosing to do it intentionally is just so key. Yeah, like I say, we've been dealing with the passing of one of our podcasts, our beloved Kitty Leela. And listening to Hushed and Grim really helped me to process a lot of the grief that I've been feeling. And it really helped me attain some peace. And yeah, I mean, like, I already loved that album. I love it even more now because of that, because it helped me so much. So another thing that we've been doing is our little record swap in the morning. I don't know if I've said it on the podcast yet. If I have, please forgive me for repeating. But what happened a few weeks ago is that I looked at my record collection and I looked at Will's record collection and I said, there are some things in my collection that I really want you to hear. And I'm sure that there's things in yours that you would love if I shared in as well. 
And so I'm going to leave you a record every morning. I'm going to pick one that I think you should listen to to start your day off. It could be from my record collection. It could be from your record collection. Yeah, some of it is stuff that we have explicitly purchased ourselves. Some of it is hand-me-down stuff that we've gotten from friends and family. Some of it is things that is ours, and some of it is things that are separately each of ours. Yeah, it's been uh, a great way to start the day. I did have a dilemma, though, because we just got a new handful of them, and I didn't get a chance to listen to all of them that arrived on that day. And I was like, okay, so tomorrow I want to share Linkin Park's Minutes Midnight with Will, except I haven't listened to it since it showed up today. So I'm going to keep it for myself to listen to before I give it to Will, because I would really like to listen to it. And then we did a record swap in the afternoon on top of our record swap in the morning. It was pretty nice. I really enjoy being able to pick something for you, intentionally for you. And I really like it that you've picked things for me to listen to because I feel like it gives me a window into you. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. I would like to remind you that we have seven awards left to oh, talk shit. about. All right. Well, that let's go ahead and move into our seven words. I had words from the book today. And so mine was, I'd crafted it deliberately. I'd cultivated it. And that just seems like a really good example of how Kvothe approaches everything. Like this whole thing is an act of image cultivation. And it, I think, is a reminder of, you know, when we look at sort of the parasocial relationships that we have with people online, we are not necessarily dealing with their whole self. We are dealing with that cultivated image that they have crafted for themselves. It's that reminder, even when it's not strictly a parasocial one, where these may be people that we know in real life, the version that they put forward online is the cultivated, the crafted image. And it's just a reminder that that only goes so far. And it also is a reminder to not always read as if we know everything about them. And it's a reminder to just take everything with a grain of salt. Remember that there is probably more going on under the surface that someone doesn't necessarily feel safe talking about openly. And that's okay. I mean, take us for example. I know that it seems like we are completely open with everything that's going on in our lives on these because we tell stories from our lives. We aren't telling you literally everything about our lives. Yeah. A lot of it is stuff that I'm not comfortable talking about or you're not comfortable talking about. And that's okay. Right. I don't need to tell everybody everything about what is going on in my head, about what's going on in my life, about every single friendship, relationship, everything. And even when I talk about some of my experiences that are very open and raw, I'm not telling you literally every bit. And that's okay. It's fine for me to have my own personal boundaries about what I do and do not talk about to a audience of literally the entire public. Yeah. Same thing back for you. And same thing for Patrick Rothfuss. Exactly. And literally every other person that you have ever thought of as famous or famous adjacent. 
They don't owe you anything. And what they're giving you is a gift. Mm -hmm. So on to my seven words. Thank you, Pat, for being the one that gave them to me. In reference to his blog post about his new expansion of the lightning tree. So yeah, there you go. Announcement made. So I love that that's at the end of a very long and rambly blog post. There's also the fact that it perfectly bookends because the beginning of this blog post is also seven words and it says new novella and announcement in three parts. So we've got two brackets of seven words surrounding this, which is just chef's kiss. And now, now we can thank each other for potting with one another. Thank you for potting with me. <laughs> and thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 100 and 101 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of fairy magic. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, we would really appreciate it if you would check us out at patreon.com slash waystonepod. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Welcome to Teal Teals from the Wildstone. <laughs> Teals from the Waystone. Take a measure of the treasure. Oh dear. <laughs>